Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, welcome back to the show. Great to have you along. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with Doug Betts. Doug may win the award for the best company name. He is the founder of Shaw Betts HR Solutions in beautiful Ipswich in the UK. And we're going to be diving into what services he provides for organizations and how he's built this business and what the future holds. So Doug, thank you very much for joining me today. No worries. Thanks for having me. And Doug, you've got a little secret there. You're a talented pianist, I believe. Is that right? I am, yeah. I've been playing since I was five, and I just realized I had the ability to play by ear. I have what's called perfect pitch. So for me, it's very oh. easy to be able to just hear a song and sit down and play it. That is so unfair. I'm very, very jealous. A perfect pitch just means if someone says play a B, you can just play the B note or whatever. Yeah instantly oh that's yeah they play the note and i know which note it is oh you must be great at weddings or parties or something yeah i have weird skills and that's just one of them (laughs) (laughs) there sounds like there's a whole new podcast episode coming up on the weird skills section but today we'll focus on sure bets hr solutions so yeah you've been consulting for a number of years you've been in hr for 20 plus years Mm. Can I start with the business and then I'll get some of your background in a moment? But yeah, just give us a quick overview of what Shorebets HR Solutions does. So for me, I'm there to provide support to a variety of people. I've got a particular interest in working with private healthcare companies and tech firms because there's both sectors I'm very familiar with. But ultimately, what I realized with my business is I originally set out thinking, well, okay, I will be there to provide an HR service to small businesses that don't need an in-house HR person. But actually, the reality is I provided services to existing HR teams, as well as doing associate work for well-known HR consultancies as well. And it's that mixture of different skills that I can do with all of them. And it's something obviously I really enjoy doing. Otherwise, I still wouldn't be doing it after 20 plus years in the business. But for me, I predominantly will do some of the things that you'd expect an HR consultant to do, like the policies, the handbooks, the contracts to make sure the auditing and compliance side of a business is right. My real interest comes in coaching and training new line managers. And I'm focusing a lot of my business now on those kind of projects, because I think every issue in a business on some level is a leadership problem. And there's so many line managers out there that get promoted into roles because they're good at what they do technically, but no one's ever taught them how to lead a team of people or get the best out of them. And this is where a lot of problems are. So a lot of my focus is on prevention rather than cure. And yes, in my line of work, you still have to cure some of the problems and get people out of trouble when they've got themselves into it. But a lot of what I do now is trying to help people get those skills so they can be confident leaders of people rather than just functional line managers. Brilliant. Now, I said earlier that I want to dive into your history and work out how you got to this point. But also, before we do that, you've written a book, which is always amazing. It links to that what you were saying there about prevention being better than the cure and all that sort of thing. But you've kind of got both ends covered with the prevention and cure with the book from new line manager to great people leader. So why'd you write it and what's it about? So I wrote it because I thought it was the book that I wanted to have 20 years ago that I never had. Because 
when I took on my first line management role in my 20s. I admit I wasn't very good at it because nobody had ever taught me how to do it. And it so frustrated me because I'm somebody who prides myself on doing a good job and understanding things. So I've kind of taken my years of experience and put it into easy bite-sized chapters so that if there is somebody out there, even if they don't sort of want to go as far as being coached one-to-one by me or buying into that kind of side of my business, there is a guide that they can sit there and read that at least give them some of the basics to get them started so they feel more confident about how they can work with their team. Absolutely. I love it. You gave me a little flashback there too. I took a year out of HR to become a line manager because I was teaching or telling people what to do, but had not done it myself. So I heard you saying about, you know, your first role that it's tricky. And I remember I had read, you know, classic HR stuff about job rotation and variation makes Mm -hmm. manual labor jobs more interesting or something like that. And so I thought, right, I'm going to do this now as a line manager. So in a logistics business, I made everyone rotate the jobs every day or every week and kept them moving through it. It caused chaos because they all said, but I'm really good at this particular thing. I said, you know, I'm good at the forklift or I'm good at the picking and packing or I'm good at customer delivery, whatever it was. But they actually wanted to focus on their strengths and play to those strengths. So I got it wrong. So I wish I'd had the book then as well. One of the things I bring inside in my book is that one size doesn't fit all because I think the rotation yeah. model you've just described in a different kind of business would be absolutely perfect. Sure. Because I've worked with people where you've got companies who are full of people who just want to come in, do what they do and go home again. Mm. And I've worked with other companies where everyone's really ambitious and want to see a career path. And I've helped design some of those so people actually feel mm. there is something they can aspire to move towards. So I think a lot of what I do is about understanding people, understanding the culture of a business and making sure that the business owners understand that culture as well. And they're putting the right things in place to essentially keep their workforce happy and engaged and not running off to the competition. That's a tricky one though, right? Because if we stick with, for instance, the whole rotation versus something else issue, how do you have some poor part of the workforce not rotating and then other sections rotating? Because I agree having different options or whatever is really important, but how do you get that balance? I think it's about, again, understanding each individual business and you can see in each one, you just identify who falls into which categories by having those conversations with them and finding out what they want. And then you can see for the ones who are the high achievers who want to move around and get promoted, you can find a way of doing it while you then look at the people who perhaps do work that they love doing for 20, 30 years and you keep them happy. I mean, it's still important that those latter people still engage and develop and don't just keep doing the same thing because it's always been done that way because I think that is the killer of most businesses when things don't move on. But it's, again, it's just getting the right level of intelligence and coaching the managers to see that and then you help them devise those programs that put it in place. And you're not always going to be able to please all of the people all of the time. But I think generally, if you communicate with your staff and tell them what you're up to, they'll generally come on board with you if they understand the logic behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the book, what's in there. So it's lots of different things. I've tried to write it in a way that's not theory based. So it's things like 10 mistakes that a manager should try and avoid. We've talked about different management styles and also what the difference is between a manager and a leader, just to name but a few things. I've also put in quite a bit about equity, diversity and inclusion, because I think Mm -hmm. that's an important skill for managers to understand. And I've also included a few case studies from some of my contacts, either from people I've worked with in the past who've given me permission to include their stories in the book, as well as people on my social media pages who've engaged with me and have wanted to include things. 
Yeah, I love and it. I think for me, it's just trying to bring it alive because there's lots of books out there about management and theories. But what I'm interested here is a practical application. And yeah, the book's 119 pages long. So it's something that people can read and digest quite quickly if they yeah. need to. Absolutely. I remember going on a training course once, might have been like a line manager type course. And we had to suddenly do these scenarios where you had someone in the team who had body odor issues and you had to go and communicate that to them. And then someone else was coming in late all the time. And it had gone from theory to suddenly practical yeah. examples of what do you say to someone when they're right opposite you. And it's very different, isn't it? So I'm glad you, you produced this book. Yeah, definitely. And when I've done training and coaching for people before, it's exactly those kind of scenarios you've just mentioned I try and bring into play because mm-hmm. nobody likes having a difficult conversation. And I think the point about being a line manager is it can be incredibly rewarding if you get it right. You get to grow and develop your team. You get to nurture these people and their talent, and it can be amazing. But there is also the downside as well. And some managers want to shy away from it and pretend it doesn't happen, but will get tripped up by it. And it's just giving them the confidence that they can actually tackle people about some of these things. Because I've had so many managers over the years say to me, well, can I really talk to somebody about their body odor? And there's me going, yes. <laughs> we do all the big issues on this show, I tell you what. Well, definitely. It's a good point because sometimes the little issues become big issues. Yeah. And the more you leave something, the worse it's going to get. So I want to encourage managers to sort of spot red flags early on and to do something about it before it becomes a massive problem. Yeah. And that's a force multiply. You've got line managers throughout the business doing better, having better conversations. Then that has a multiplying effect and feeds up the chain and makes strategy implementation easier and stuff like that. So it's not absolutely any less important. It's just different. So yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. So tell us about your background. Like I said, 20 plus years in HR, and then you have formed a while back, you formed Shorebets HR Solutions, but you did it in an interesting way, in a kind of a gradual way to move from employment into the consulting world. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So for me, one of my weird regrets about consulting is I didn't do it sooner because I do really enjoy doing it. And, Mm. you know, I'm now in my 40s and I've had the idea in the back of my head about starting a business since I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And obviously life, employment, climbing the career ladder kind of got in the way of that in a way. Mm. But it was actually the pandemic that made me decide that now was the time to take the plunge and move across. I think the pandemic was life-changing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it taught me that I quite like working at home, very happy to travel out and meet clients. I didn't necessarily want to commit to going into the same office five days a week anymore. And I like working for a variety of clients, which is something I've done for many years because I started my HR career out in the public sector and I spent the first nine years in that side, so I worked for the police, I worked for local government, and I worked for a further education college. Right. I then jumped into the private sector just as the late 2000s recession was kicking in and the public sector was saving money. So I moved uh-huh. to the private sector where I worked in private healthcare and I worked for an HR consultancy company as an employee. So again, that sort of gave me a lot of ideas yeah. and background about what I could potentially be doing in the future. And then from there, I moved into my first head of HR role that kind of got, I was there for 10 and a half years. It was a company I really enjoyed working for. It was a group role, so I was working for lots of different companies. So again, a little bit of consultancy was in there because you had to wear different hats and you were used to dealing with different cultures and different size companies within the group all going on at the same time, which I enjoyed. And so I came in as head of HR and I left as HR director and I enjoyed it. And it was definitely the right time to go though. And when I realised that I'd kind of done everything I could do in that role, I did sort of start to talk about 
how I wanted to transition because I think for me there's so many people get into HR consultancy they do the cliff edge thing they stop being an employee and then they then start to sit around the kitchen table and go help I've got no clients I've got not a clue what I'm going to be doing with the help of my current company they were very good and I had a very supportive manager as the group HR director she allowed me to transition so I did go part-time in my last year Wow, that's and cool. then I knew my, my role was going to come to an end because it didn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with that. And actually, I now have them as one of my retained clients. And that works quite nicely for me. Wow. So they've been able to retain my skill set. And I was able to sort of make that move. And then when I had the part time working arrangement, it gave me the time to not just try and find clients, but also to absorb a lot of learning I invested in some coaches I read a lot of books I went to a lot of webinars and I learned all sorts of things I didn't know before about sales marketing and getting yourself out there and it was a new skill set and I think for me I like a challenge because I do get bored easily and I didn't want to just be the HR person who was purely HR I like to think I break the stereotype of what a typical HR person might be and I think, well, it's good that I can now sort of bring to the table that if I speak to business owners, I can understand commerciality a lot better. I can understand a lot of their pain points better because now when you run your own business, you do understand about finance, marketing, IT, sales, and all of those kind of core functions mm-hmm. and what you're trying to do. And, you know, unlike a lot of these business owners I talk to, they're passionate about their product or their service too. So you can see how it starts and you can really relate to them in a different way to perhaps an in-house HR director might be able to who'd only ever done in-house roles. So, yeah, that's the long and short of how I managed to transition in the way I did. But, yeah, it was the right move at the right time for me. I think it's genius. So I've recorded over 200 podcast episodes on this show. So you're not the first person to say that they transition from full-time to part-time consulting while still working. and you're not the first person to say that they got their first client from their old employer, but it is very rare, but it's so powerful. As you know, it's just such a great way to do it because you've got that income. You've got slowly dipping the toe into the water. You've got client work coming in from the new business. And and also for your first client, if you already know the organization, you know where to start. There's less of the slow ramp up stage. So I think that's brilliant. So people listening to this, that's a, a great tip to consider if they haven't already started so to phase that in and i love what you said there about as being a business owner it does give you a whole new set of tools or awareness for consulting because even just things like cash flow if you're an employee you don't think about cash flow but if you're a business owner 100 that's one of the biggest skills of any business so cash helping is cash is king so helping your consultants your clients manage that through faster project delivery or adding new services and things like that, you may not consider something like that if you weren't a business owner yourself. So I completely agree. And I would encourage employers to think about using consultants more because they've got that business awareness. Definitely. And also we're better cost than perhaps having somebody in-house all the time because you might not need somebody in-house all the time. You bring me in for a project or on a subscription basis and you then know what you're getting and where you're getting it. And it's a good model to have. And I think for me, I pick up experience working with lots of different companies and organizations. And mm. and like I said, I'm lucky it's not just my most recent employer who helped me, but the HR consultancy I was employed with over 10 years ago, I've been doing associate work for them for a bit as well. So they got in touch with me. So actually the two companies I've left are have been using me regularly since I started this. And that's 
again really helped me so always to leave a job on good terms with people because you never know when it might come back and help oh, you yeah 100 i agree with that and you mentioned earlier that you have a I don't know, a strength or an interest in the healthcare sector and also I think the tech sector you mentioned. Mm. So they're very different. How do you see the HR issues differing between them? And then secondly, I often would go on about try to focus on an industry or a niche or whatever because it just helps you market and grow better. But a lot of businesses don't, and that's cool. You come up with a different strategy. So how does that affect you in terms of business development having a few different focus areas. Yeah. So what are the differences in the industries and then how do you see that yeah. affecting your business as an offering, if you like? So I think the first thing is sometimes people are people wherever you are and you get some of the same issues. Yeah. But I think with private healthcare, I think you've got the sets of issues around, firstly, again, there's a lot about new managers who are promoted up from being on the floor, helping patients to then being team leaders and managers, assistant managers, deputy managers. So there's still that sort of skills gap in people understanding how to step up and deal with issues. In the world of healthcare, you've got lots of fears around CQC inspections and being compliant with that, making sure everything's in place, as well as big turnover because it's not the best paid sector. So again, you have to put the right strategies in place to make your staff want to actually come and work there in the first place and stay. And also, historically, it's attracted a lot of overseas workers as well. So if there's a skill shortage there, you need to be able to plug it and you help businesses do that. And I've also found when you work in, I've worked in care homes in the past that you get different cultures of people from different parts of the world all coming together. And sometimes they get on, but sometimes they don't. So, again, it's understanding those cultural differences. So that is, I think, the focus for the healthcare sector when it comes to tech companies which interesting, I've picked up a few new ones lately as well. Excellent. Again, different kind of mindset. You've got very detailed, very precise people who, you know, you've got the coders of this world who like to work at 2am in a dark cupboard under the stairs. And again, you've still got the attraction retention issues. Quite often you've got people here with unique skill sets who it is all about the money and they will follow the money to whoever is paying the most because their jobs are in demand and you can now paying some ridiculously high salaries for software developers for example and because I've got a good understanding of MSPs and how they fit together it's sort of understanding those roles and doing things to again attract and retain the right people and get the right culture because again tech isn't going anywhere it's only going to get bigger and better and it's making sure you've got people in who've got the right skill set but also have got the right brains to bring new ideas and innovation somewhere so whereas with healthcare day-to-day, lots of the professionals are providing repetitive care, but it's about building relationships with patients, whereas I like the contrast of tech because it's about building new products to make the world a better place and to make it more efficient. Yeah, yeah. And I can only see the future of work going in that way because there's been so much talk lately about things like AI. It's important that businesses don't think it won't affect them. Yeah, absolutely. I always sort of laugh when I see tech company software providers talk about how good their customer service is. And I always think, well, if you're a software, I don't really want to talk to someone and get a problem solved on a help query desk. I just want it to work. Whereas other industries, yeah, absolutely customer services is a huge issue. So I can see the differences for sure. And I think another mistake that tech companies will make is they will treat their customers and their potential employees differently. And actually they could be one in the same. 
So I think, you know, they can spend millions on marketing their product or service out there to the market. But actually, I think they need to apply those same techniques to attracting in the right people in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And, you know, if you're a tech company, if somebody applies for a job, it's got to be an easy process. They've got to feel engaged. They've got to feel like they belong in that company. So it's getting the right words, the right material and also the right software to facilitate that as well. And I think the reason I was drawn to tech companies is I've got that kind of techie brain as well, because I've often been engaged to do a lot of IT projects for HR software in the past. So, again, I kind of understand that mentality. And I just happen to have both skill sets because there's a part of me that really enjoys talking to people, engaging with people, building up relationships. There's another part of me is quite happy crunching data sometimes all by myself in a dark corner. (laughs) Like the coder under the stairs. Yeah. Fair enough, too. Let's stick with health and tech. I know of your business, you have different sort of service offerings. You've got retainers and projects and things like that. How do you structure your services for the two different industries? Are there certain service types like retainers get used more in one sector and then projects more in another? Or are there entry-level services that are more popular? What do you see in terms of what you offer and how they connect to those two different industries? So it really varies. Quite often I'm approached to take on a project to start with. And then if people have got to know me and like me in that time and they realise I'm giving good advice, they'll often keep me on on a retainer. Obviously, the projects can be more lucrative, depending on the size of the company. But what I've offered to people, I've just started to package what I do up into different chunks. So I do a new starter package. So there's so many people, I don't say as a niche that I will just focus on new businesses because they don't often have a lot of money. So I have put together like a starter package that I know a new business owner could afford when they're about to take on their first few employees. So for me, it's giving them just the basic policies that they need, not lengthy ones that no one's ever going to look at that aren't relevant to them if we only got a couple of people. Getting the right contract of employment template in there because I've seen so many bad ones downloaded for free off the internet that just don't do the job and aren't worth what they're written on. So I put things like that in place. I do job descriptions. I help people benchmark their pay and I help them with the recruitment process to take their first few people on. So I've done that a few times. That said, I've done bigger projects as well. In the last year, I've found there's been a lot of projects coming my way about job evaluation and pay benchmarking. So it's a lot of bigger employers wanting to know how do they compare to their competitors Are they giving the right pay and benefits to people? And because I'm trained in job evaluation, I can sit there, I can crunch the data, but then I can make it meaningful. Mm -hmm. I can come back to those business owners and I can tell them what's going right as well as what they need to do differently. And then in terms of my advice and retainer package, it's a lot of the traditional what HR people would refer to as employee relations and what I would refer to as employment law problem solving. So dealing with managers ringing up going I've got a late employee I've got somebody who's not performing I've got somebody who's misbehaving and it's how you deal with those situations so there's a lot of skills around understanding those people and the conflict resolution that you need to have to be able to resolve things quickly and amicably I like it so typically it would start with a project and then maybe migrate to a retainer type model after that is that right That's often the way because very rarely will a stranger off the street who doesn't know you and know your work instantly want to pay you Mm. so much a month for the privilege of just being there in case they need you. As an HR person, nobody wants HR as a luxury. It's there to solve a problem usually. So, you know, from a marketing perspective, you have to be super clear about what problem it is you're actually solving and who you're appealing to. And it is very much trial and error basis if you're out there trying to market yourself as a new business. Yeah. 
That's great advice. And then on the project side, if that's the entry point, how do you structure your pricing? Not so much the numbers, but do you do hourly set fees? How do you work out what you're going to put into the proposal? So for me, I like to try and work on fixed fees rather than an hour or a day rate. So on a fixed fee basis, what you're doing is you're putting your expertise into a project and you know that you're going to come out with a good result for your client. So it's therefore really important to not think about how many hours or days. You can estimate it in your head when you're pricing up as to roughly how long you think it will take you. I charge a bit more if they want something really urgently and I have to push their work up the queue. And I think that works well. I also, because there was a charitable side of me as well, I do charge slightly lower rates for people if I know their businesses. I have done some work for -for not-for-profits and childcare providers in the past, and I know they don't have huge amounts of money to spend, and I still want to make the service for them affordable as well. So historically, in the past, I have given slightly lower rates to them because I still want them to have access to the expertise. But I have sort of tried to be more consistent with my pricing in more recent months, and I've priced by the job. I always ask for a deposit up front. I mean, luckily for me, again, all my clients are good at paying it. So I'm good, but I'm also on top of my figures. And that's another piece of advice I give to people in my position is always know your figures and be on top of your money. As we said earlier, cash is king. And it's really important that you know how much money is coming into your business, how much is going out and how much profit you're making. Luckily for me, if you like figures, it's good because I've just got that anyway. And you just need to know your numbers so you're not running at a loss. So when you say know your figures, what do you have a spreadsheet or an invoicing system so you know this invoice coming in at this date or it's cash collected? How do you kind of manage that from a practical sense? So for me, I've always loved spreadsheets. Anyone who's ever worked with me will laugh at me because they know I'm so obsessed with them. But that's <laughs> how I started. In more recent months, I've moved on to zero. And I found that's actually a really good piece of software if you're a small business like me you send your invoices out through it it keeps on top of the figures you can see what's coming in you link it to your business bank account so you can tie the two things up and reconcile the statements then it's very easy to hand it to an accountant when they do your year-end accounts for you because all the data is there and also because I pay myself a salary it's a payroll system as well so for me if you just want a basic payroll system you've got that bolt on too and you can claim expenses from it as well so For me, it's a nice piece of software that's affordable at a monthly basis and it keeps your business ticking over because otherwise, if you get too big, you don't want to be disorganized and trying to remember what money's outstanding. And for me, I can instantly see what's outstanding and I'm not afraid to get on there and chase it up if it hasn't come through. Brilliant. Yeah, that's a great approach to take. That You mentioned deposit. I would normally say upfront or a partial payment or something like that. Can you explain how do you communicate the deposit to clients? So what I do is when I have a sales call with them, I will check that they're happy to work with me. I will then do a proposal. And in that proposal, I'll be very clear about what I'm looking for at what stages. So if it's a short project, it will be a deposit, then the balance on completion. And if it's one where perhaps I'm doing a project that will last for four or five months, I'll often ask for a deposit, then I'll ask for the rest of the money in equal installments over that period. So again, it's a bit of a common sense approach, but I'm up front, so there's no arguments about what is and isn't acceptable, and it's just there and available. So I think it's a good way to be up front. And for me, with my proposals, I've now followed them up so they don't disappear into thin air because I made that mistake once. So particularly for larger scale projects, I will always have a follow-up call a week after the proposal so they can ask me questions and 
for me, my sales technique is yeah, it's non-pushy. It's about how can I help you solve your problem, yeah. find out more about the business, and yeah, put something to them that I think that will solve their problems. Make it very clear in the proposal. I've listened to them and understood their needs, and then it's up to them to ask me the questions. And I don't mind being grilled because I want to be open to scrutiny and want people to feel that they can trust me because they're passing with money in my direction, and I want to yeah. make sure in return I'm providing a good service. Certainly for our clients, when we coach them on this side of things, we would normally, our aim is to show the proposal in a call, an actual meeting, rather than sending them via email and hoping that they read it and then nervously following up, just book a call, run them through it so they've got the questions and then you get the yes or no in there or you're at least much closer to it. People will probably scream in the background, how much is the deposit? Like, what do you do? A third, 20%? It varies. I think it depends on the size of the project and the mm-hmm. risk associated with it. And I think the more work I have to do up front, the bigger the size of the yeah. deposit. So, for example, I quoted this morning for a training day and I've asked for about a third of it up front because it's bespoke training. I can't yeah. just pull it off the shelf. I'm going to have to sit down and actually write this unique to mm-hmm. a client. So I've done it in what I think is a fair way. And I think there's other people who do 50% up front or they want all the money up front. And again, that's not unreasonable either. It depends very much on the exact service that you're offering to people. Mm-hmm. And particularly where I've seen 100% upfront is if you subscribe to, say, a 12-week program where you're expected to turn up on Zoom every week or, you know, you have access to a web portal to do training and development. So I've kind of seen those things upfront because you are kind of allowing them, as it were, access to everything upfront as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a balance and there's no hard and fast rules to it. And I think the easiest thing I can say to people is be flexible, but be consistent in the logic behind why you're making the decisions you're making about your pricing. And sorry for nerding out on all this. I just find it so interesting that the way you've organized it so well. And for people listening to this, yeah, getting money upfront or deposit or however you want to phrase it, I think is really important. I had one client who selfishly, they went and died. So it was very hard to get money back because your family and creditors stepping in and in the games that you play with, all that sort of stuff. And then secondly, I love the fact that you mentioned about having either it's an installments or a payments timetable almost. A, because the client likes that. They know where they stand. The CFO goes, this is great. I know what I have to pay and when I allocate money. So they actually appreciate that. Yeah. And then lastly, you can also, having mentioned zero, but whichever software, or even if you just use a calendar system, you can diarize when to send out next invoices and you can actually put those in ahead of time and just schedule them to send out automatically so you're taking some of that admin headache away so i I love the way you've structured it it's really really good right you just have to find what works for you for me i I like organization and feeling in control of stuff so that's really helped me at the moment i invoice on a monthly basis unless something unusual happens but i quite like sitting there at the end of the month and looking at my revenue looking at my profit and working out what next month's cash flow is so yeah i love it if i come back to the business and the services you offer and stuff how do you summarize at a networking event or something like that about what you do? Because you've got different industries, you've got big projects, you've got small retainers, you've got a few different things going on, and they're not necessarily in the same industry or whatever. How do you explain to people what you do in a nutshell? It's a really good question, and I have to try to work on this answer. And I think for me, it's I help employers create good employee experiences at work which will lead to better retention, less turnover and less staffing issues. That's how I try and summarise it up because that's like the bottom line of what it all comes down to, all the different work I do. That's what I help people achieve. That's the problem I help solve. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned turnover and retention, things like that, which are hot topics. For other stuff, they might say it's generic or 
I guess it then depends on who you're talking to, right? And then you shape your answer depending yeah. on their situation. Is that true? Yeah, that's the way to do it. But for me, I like to understand the business and what their pain points are. So I will yeah. hone my answer in. I spent my career being a true generalist. And obviously in this world, you have to niche a bit. So it's a bit harder. But I found what people are buying at the moment is the job evaluation packages. They're buying the new starter packages. So I'm kind of honing those things on there. Nice. I'm also trying to make sure I get repeat business from existing clients because obviously they're a warm audience who already know you and trust you. And I think up front, it's getting people to know you, like you and trust you because, yeah, there's plenty of other consultancies out there. There's plenty of people who do this as a one-person band. There's other people, obviously, large firms out there who do it. And I think the reason people have come to me over a large firm is it's a more personal service. I do understand the business. I'm not just an anonymous individual in the call centre who you have to explain the problem to in a different way every time because you get a different person. So that's how I make myself more unique. I've got the mix of tech and understanding technology as well as employment law. And I think because I've worked in HR as long as I have, I generally know the people issues that are going to come up. I I will know how to solve them and I know how to solve them quickly and painlessly. And I've seen less experienced people in the profession who struggle with that. I focus my solution in on what the potential client is telling me their biggest problem is. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. Doing a, a coaching call yesterday with a client, they're a new business, but they've got their first sales appointment coming in. And one of the principles is you have two ears, one mouth. So you're trying to learn, listen, find out about their business. So then when it's your turn to speak and perhaps develop a proposal, it's very much shaped to their needs and situations. So I'm glad you said that You know, it's about yeah. learning their problems and their situations and things like that. And I'll yeah. tell you what, with 20 plus years of HR experience, I think you know what's coming around the corner anyway, but you, yeah. still, you still ask the question, right? You do, but you also have to sort of stay on top of the trends yourself and make sure that, you know, again, the answer I might have given five years ago might not be right today. Yeah, so true. AI and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of business growth marketing type of work quite clearly. And you mentioned you learned all sorts of things. Overall, what's worked well for you and what has not worked so well? And any advice for others around yeah. the world who might be listening and thinking, well, how could I grow my own HR-related business? Okay, so again, for me personally, I found I enjoyed sales conversations and didn't struggle with those. Other people do. So it's really find your own weaknesses and invest in the training and development that will help you in that area. For me, I knew I needed to get better at marketing and the attraction piece. So that's where I focus a lot of my efforts. I think I would say invest wisely. There will be all sorts of people out there who will tell you that they'll want to work with you and you know it's either sort of spend a thousand pounds a year on my subscription to this website that will guarantee you leads it won't or spend 500 quid a year on this package aimed at advertising you to a particular sector it won't work I've tried those ones and failed them so I'd rather people learn from my mistakes (laughs) I think what works well with people is authenticity and consistency so you do have to show up you have to post regular content but I think you also have to be yourself as well because I need to stand out so I'm not just another generic HR consultant in the marketplace I want people to connect with me because they identify with my values or how I conduct business or you know sometimes it's about geography where I'm based but I found that's less of an issue these days due Mm. to technology so I can work all over the place and that works well I think yeah it's having good content grow your audience mailing lists still work try and grow those and I sense still a work in progress for me as I'm getting bigger mm-hmm. and I think it's also working out where you actually want to be some people are very happy just to do this kind of role part-time and it works around their childcare, their family arrangements which is good I want to actually see how big I can make this it's just me at the moment but I'm interested to get to the point where I can take on associates or employees if I get big enough and I get enough work 
So for me, I've got quite ambitious plans. Again, my advice is don't try and run before you can walk. Mm-hmm. I know an HR consultant who sadly didn't succeed in their business. They focused in and niched on startups, but they had an all singing, all dancing bells and whistles packages with lots of people lined up in the background. And actually, that's not what a new business needs. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a shame because I think actually they've got the potential to be good because their marketing was really good, but it just wasn't hitting the right notes with the right people. So yeah, think carefully about it. But I think my other biggest bit of advice, which I'm guilty of myself, is to stop procrastinating and just get on with it and do it. Because like with my book, it's come out in the last few weeks, but I've been writing that on and off for a year. And I just think, I wish I'd just done it sooner. There is a slight fear of almost success if you're sort of sitting on things. And I think just, yeah, words of say Nike, just do it. Yeah, absolutely. I've done probably most marketing channels over the years from TV and radio and email, LinkedIn, the works. And generally I find, I was saying this to a client the other day, actually, that there's no silver bullet. So I love that you said it's about showing up and that consistency because it is. So if it's around LinkedIn or email or advertising, you do need to be consistent because they're all small pieces that build upon the previous and they build up over time. And you also get data, you find out what works, what doesn't work, and you focus in on those more, stuff like that. Whereas if you just did an ad here or a LinkedIn post there or a speech over here, you might get disappointed every time. Whereas it sounds like you're being focused and again, consistent in making sure you just keep doing this stuff and letting that build up you have to and i think also expect the unexpected a lot of my business has come from referrals and recommendations but you can't always predict where it will come from which i quite like in some ways if you ask people how they've heard of you it comes from some very obscure links or they've been silently stalking you for a year in the background and it's interesting because this is something i found when i was trying to appeal to tech companies they don't post a lot on linkedin so it was really difficult to try and engage with them and connect with them Mm. But yeah, it's nice to expect the unexpected. And like I said, the quote I've done today for a company was because it's somebody I've known from years ago. They didn't know I got my own business, but they saw that I was recommended in a Facebook group for something completely different, not even wow. to them, but they just saw my name and it prompted them to get in touch with me. So it's, yeah, it's amazing where it comes from. And I kind of like that way of how you get different recommendations from different people. Yeah. So again, for, for people starting out on this, I'd say, yes, try and get new business in, but cold leads take a lot time to warm up. So don't forget to focus on trying to get repeat business or referrals and recommendations from your existing clients, because they can already put in that good word for you. And they know that you're good at what you do and they trust you. Yeah. You're quite clearly the master. Your first client was your old employer and you've got to focus on retaining and then getting more work from existing clients because that's the best way rather than trying to find new markets, just use the one you've got. And then, yeah, you also mentioned about being authentic. And I know, for instance, on your own website, you've got a section on values and, you know, what matters to you or what might matter to potential clients and to current clients. So I really like that and, you know, shared about yourself on the website and elsewhere in your marketing stuff, which comes back to that no like trusting that you mentioned. Now, how can people help support you, whether that be either becoming a client or referring business to you or somehow working with you in other ways? What are the options there? There's various ways they can work with me. And for me, I'm not a pushy salesperson. I will always sort of listen to them first and try and work out exactly how I can help them. And there's certain markets and or people that I won't work with because it's just easier then to focus in on the niches. I think people can approach me if they either need a project done, and I've got the list on my website of projects which I'm about to update so people can see it in nice, easy packages what I'm offering and whether that suits their need. But again, I'm quite 
flexible and can bespoke them accordingly rather than sell somebody something that they don't fully need and they only need part of it. If they just want somebody on call for advice at any time, they can work with me on a subscription basis, which is relatively short term. If they don't want me for more than a few months, that's absolutely fine. You know, I'm not here to sell people things they don't need. They can obviously buy the book if they want to just read that and then make a decision from there. Or if they just want my updates at this stage, they can join my mailing list. So those are like the different ways people get in touch. I'm looking to sort of grow leadership coaching programs aimed at new line managers, whether that's one-on-one or in small groups. Mm. Uh, that's anything I've got coming up for the future as well. And I do want to sort of focus more on doing sort of positive training and coaching in businesses about management and leadership skills in general, because again, it's back to the prevention is, is better than cure. And I think sort of in terms of my own style, you'll see from one of my values, I realized when I was trying to work out what my values actually were, the biggest one for me is positive disruptor because all my heroes and heroines are positive disruptors, <laughs> fictional, non-fictional. So I think for me, if people can connect with what I'm saying and how I'm trying to do HR, then I'm probably a good fit for them. And for me, if you had a bad experience of HR in the past, or you think HR is about a pink and fluffy person or organise a Christmas party, then I'm probably not the right person to do it. Mm. But for me, I want to disrupt the way it's done currently and do it in a way that actually works for business owners and works for the business. So it's not lots of stuffy policies, not lots of lengthy contracts, not the finger-wagging police image that HR wrongly often have, but actually somebody who can add value and profitability into a business and can be trusted to give you straight, no-nonsense advice. So I think if that connects with people then I'm probably the right person to have a chat with. Brilliant. And then finally, for consultants and business owners listening to this, the fact that you produced the book from new line manager to great people leader, you mentioned you're interested in developing frontline leader training courses, I think is a wonderful product line. It's got huge potential and that one could be remote, online, et cetera, without you being present to deliver in you know hours for money, time for money. So that's a wonderful example of thinking outside the box. And what was it? Positive disruptor? Yeah, positive disruptor. So Doug, you've shared so much great advice, insights, and your stories. I've absolutely loved it. So thank you very much. Last thing to do is to share your website address for people listening. Yeah. So that's www.shorebetshr.com. Brilliant. Excellent. We'll have all of this stuff in the show notes. But Doug, thank you very much for sharing everything today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.